A couple of months ago, my, my daughter and I went on a two-day road trip. And while we were doing that, uh, kind of to pass the time, we played a little question game. Uh, and it's just one of those games you just make up as you go along, and you just kind of, when you think of an item, and it was kind of like uh, choices, like what's your preference? And uh, over the two days, we would pop up one here and then another one there, and we probably came up with 20 or 30 uh, during those couple days. So here are a few of them. Uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas, cleaning or cooking, Burger King or McDonald's, fishing or the zoo. So what I'm going to invite you to do is to play the game. And in just a moment, I'm going to have you kind of huddle up into groups of three or four. And, uh, uh, if, and of course, always look around you when you've huddled up. If there's somebody who's alone, just kind of see if they want to join you. And of course, you don't have to say anything. If you'd rather not, feel free to, to just listen. But I also would encourage you to to, you know, don't dilly-dally, get right in it, because I'm not going to give you very long, okay? But share what, what your answers to those questions, all right? Just huddle up three or four and starting now. Okay, 15 more seconds. All right. You know, uh, yeah, I think it's just part of being American. We love our preferences, don't we? I mean, we, we believe, somehow we just assume that we are entitled to our preferences. I mean, you scan the, the menu at a restaurant and you pick your preference. You go shopping for a car, you pick your preference. We pursue our preferences wherever we go, including church. You want traditional or contemporary. Your preference. You want 9 o'clock or 10.45, your preference. You want to try a faith group? We've got men's groups, women's groups, mixed groups, daytime groups, evening groups, Sunday groups, younger groups, older groups, mixed age groups. Your preference. And sometimes we, we, we go to church like we're at Starbucks, you know. I want a tall mocha, non-fat, half-decap cappuccino, Please. You know, I, I, I want the music lively, but not too loud. I want the pastor to be funny, but not a comedian. I want the people to be friendly, but not too friendly. I want to be challenged, but not uncomfortable. 
<laughs> As Michael Bird says, the church is not a business selling snack-sized portions of religion. And yet sometimes I think that's what we want it to be. One thing I like about the Apostles' Creed is that it has stood the test of time. It's not a branding gimmick. It's not a marketing campaign. It, it simply says at one point in the, in the uh, creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And that's the part that we're going to be looking at today uh, on the Apostles' Creed. First, let's define church, all right? Now, there are two important ways that the Bible talks about the church. Uh, first, the church, and we could use a lowercase c here, is a local gathered community of Jesus' disciples. Uh, the church, now we could use a capital C here if we wanted to, uh, is all of Jesus' disciples of all kinds in all places all over the world. Now, there may be millions of lowercase c churches, but there is only one capital C church. And when we say, I believe in the church, we're saying both, really, uh, that we believe in both, that we are part of both, because you cannot have one without the other. Now, we are, of course, part of a local church, this local church, Faith Westwood, uh, but we're also a part of the capital C church of all denominations, uh, non-denominations, and, and all nations and languages and, and you know, styles of worship. Uh, to paraphrase St. Augustine, if God is our father, then the church is our mother. It's interesting in the four Gospels about, about the life of Jesus that he only uses the word church three times. Kind of surprising, isn't it? And one of them is the passage Larry just read for us a little bit ago. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to turn, with, turn to that verse with me. Uh, it's Matthew 16, verse 18. So if you brought your own Bible or you got it on your phone, uh, pull that up. You can use the Pew Bible, uh, page 983. Uh, now, in this verse, Simon has just come to the revelation that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's more than a miracle man. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised king. He is God's deliverer sent to us. So now what I want us to do is look at the first part of verse 18. You got it? And Jesus replies, I tell you that you are Peter. Now, that's Jesus' nickname for him. And Peter means rock. All right? And, and, all, and he says, I'm going to call you Peter. And on this Rock, in the Greek, it's I'm, your name is Petros, and on this Petra, uh, I, I will, I will what? say those last three, next three words with me. I will build my church. Let's say it again. Jesus says, I will build my church. Whose church is it? His church. I was at, I was at a district meeting uh, recently, and someone from Faith Westwood was there, and she, at one point in the conversation, she pointed to me and says, I go to his church. And I, I, I quipped back. I said, I thought I was pastor of your church. And, of course, we were both right. It's her church. It's my church. But most of all, it is Jesus' church. He's the one in charge. He leads the way. The church does not cater to my preferences 
or yours. Jesus is, uh, it, it is not about what we want, it's about what he wants. Uh, Jesus is building a community of people who believe and belong to him. And of course, we have a part to play, right? He's told us that. I mean, in, in building the church, you know, we're going to, kind of metaphorically speaking, we're going to lay some bricks and we're going to nail some, uh, uh, hammer some nails, but he's the architect of it all. He's got the blueprint. He is the builder of the church. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, when he says this rock, what's he talking about? Well, he seems to be talking about Peter, or at least what he just said, but he seems to be pointing back to Peter. Uh, so in, in what way is Simon Peter the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church? Now, the book of Acts in the Bible is the sequel to the Gospels, and it tells how the message of Jesus was brought to many peoples in many places. And at critical turning points, Peter, Simon Peter, had a crucial role to play. When the Holy Spirit first came upon the 120 of Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, I mean, things just kind of exploded out of there, and, and all, it got the, the, the attention of all the crowds in, in Jerusalem. They said, what's going on? Who was the one who stood up and announced the message of salvation in Jesus and that the age of the Holy Spirit had come? It was Simon Peter. 3,000 people were saved that day, and that was the beginning of the church. Later, uh, Peter's fellow apostle, Philip, uh, he was the first one to announce the good news of, of salvation to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were sort of like ethnic cousins to the Jews. But the Holy Spirit didn't come until Peter and John showed up and laid hands on them. It's like God is saying, I, I want this connection to what happened with the, with the Jewish people to also be there for the Samaritans. And then when God uh, said it was, you know, knew it was time to bring the, the gospel message to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who did he send? It was Peter. At, at all three major turning points, Jesus sends Peter, the rock. And of course, there were other people, there were other rocks that became a part of that uh, and, and announced the good news. And there were, there were Philip and Paul and Barnabas and, and Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila. I like Ephesians 2.20. It says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Our, uh, our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers see Jesus' words to Peter, uh, on this rock I will build my church as, as establishing the office of the Pope. Well, we, we Protestants see it a little differently, but, but I think we can agree that, that the Pope is an important person in pointing people to Jesus, and that's what Peter did. There's one more thing about Peter. Um, and I, I've mentioned some of this sometime earlier in the year, but uh, early tradition says that, that Mark, who wrote the gospel according to Mark, uh, was an interpreter for Simon Peter. So as Peter was traveling around and, and telling all about Jesus and preaching to people and offering salvation, uh, Mark was always there translating for him. And uh, so after doing that, I'm sure for a number of years, then Mark later 
uh, wrote down all that stuff that he remembered and heard so often. And so, so Mark's gospel represents uh, what Peter gave us. And, and, and we know that, that Matthew and Luke also used that gospel as one of their sources in writing theirs. And John's gospel assumes that its readers are familiar with the other three already. So I think in a big way, the foundation about what we know about Jesus comes to us, first of all, from Simon Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. I remember the night that I was ordained by Bishop Monk Bryan. I love that guy. You know, uh, and that night, he preached a, a sermon that just, 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 imp- just filled me up, you know, just challenged me and called me, renewed that call that I felt was all, that God had given me on my life, and, and I was so ready to just jump right up and, and kneel at the front of the church. And, and then my time came, and I did that, and, and he came up to me, and he laid his hands on my head, and he ordained me to carry out my duties as a minister of the gospel. I gave my life to that calling because I believe in Jesus, but also because I believe in his church. And if you trace back to who ordained Monk Brian and, and who ordained who in generations previous, uh, you'd eventually get back to John Wesley. And if you could trace back who ordained John Wesley and then to all preceding generations before that, you would find, I believe, an unbroken line of laying on of hands that stretches all the way back to the original apostles. At least I like to believe that. And it's the same could be said for you in your baptism. You were baptized by someone who was baptized by someone else. And if you could follow that chain all the way back, I believe it could go back clear to the original apostles. And so in that way, all of us have a physical, spiritual, historical connection to them through baptism. Jesus is building his church. And you and I are part of it. You and I are living stones in his temple. The, the entryway in our house where Trish and I live, you walk into the entryway and you come right into the living room. And if you look up right there in between those two rooms, up to the ceiling, you see a crack. Follows the seam right there. And uh, we had it patched once, but it came back. And I wonder if that crack might be partly due to the fact that several times a day, a freight train uh, rumbles behind our backyard and rattles the house. Maybe. In the same way, there are stresses that rattle the church today. Causes cracks and divisions among us. Because even though Jesus is building his church, we also recognize that the church is a human thing, (laughs) right? The church is as flawed as we are. And yet, the Apostles' Creed is one of the things that God has given us that brings us a home base 
to come back to, something we can unite around. And so here, just past the midpoint of our message, I'd like for us to, uh, to affirm our faith using the Apostles' Creed. So I invite you to stand with me. Let's join together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. You may be seated. As you probably noticed, the, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed is structured around the Trinity, uh, the three-in-one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and there, therein lies the source of our unity. It's not in us. It's not in what we can achieve. Our unity rests in God. I like what uh, Ephesians 4 says. He says there, it says there is one body, meaning the church, and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, that is Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Our unity lies there in God. You know, the creed um, says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, how is the church holy? Not because it's sinless. We know that, right? Uh, the church is holy uh, because it is unique. That's word holy can kind of mean unique. It means it's different. It means it's set apart for God's special purposes. Uh, another way to say it is that the church is supposed to be weird. Are we, and we're pretty successful at that, right? Uh, we're supposed to be weird. Where else do you eat uh, bread and juice and refer to it as body and blood? I mean, is that weird? Where else do you mark a person with water to uh, signal their welcome into the fellowship? Where else do you use this strange vocabulary we've got of disciple and redemption and sin and salvation? Where else do you hear that the highest commandment is to love God and love people? Let me tell you, the church must never stop being weird because the world needs that weird, right? That's, that weirdness is the hope of the world, and we need it. That's why we keep showing up every week because we've got to keep learning the story and rehearsing God's great story. That's what it means to be holy. And it says also that we believe in the holy Catholic church, and, and we Protestants... Uh, I tend to choke on that a little bit. But, but we have to remember that, that when we say the Holy Catholic Church, we don't exactly mean the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the word Catholic is actually a word that has a meaning, which means it's universal. Um, it's kind of everywhere and all, at, all, at all times at once. And so uh, despite our divisions, 
there is, in God's eyes, one church from all times, all places. Um, some years ago, some people in a church in Canada uh, began praying every morning at 10.02 a.m. I don't think they would usually gather, but you know, wherever they were, people would, would pray at 10.02 a.m. And their prayers, uh, they, they chose 10.02 because it was inspired by Luke 10, verse 2, where Jesus is, is talking about all the people who would eagerly re respond to him, but they just don't know, or they haven't heard, or they haven't had someone kind of, you know, show that to them and live it for them in a way they could understand. And so he says, the, he, he looks out, he says, look, the harvest is plentiful. It's just the workers who are few. So he said, what I want you to do is just pray. Pray that God will send more workers out into the harvest. And so that is why they pray at 10.02 every morning, and that's what they pray for. And so that idea began catching on with churches here and there and all over the world. A prayer leader in a church in China says, every day when my alarm goes off at 10.02 a.m., I pray for the churches in China and around the world and for the raising up of church planters, people who will start new churches. She says, it's like we are all in the, in the river of history doing this together for God's will. I just recently learned about the 1002 prayer movement. I'm fascinated by it. But I just am, am just, you know, amazed at how it has caught on and, and how it's, uh, churches in all different nations and languages and denominations and movements. And, and, and it just, to me, is a sign that we are one holy Catholic church, bridging borders, languages, theologies, denominations. And the church also includes the communion of saints. We are united with those who have gone to be with the Lord. The church that I grew up when I was a kid, um, you know, my, my family went to it uh, but also, my grandparents did. So there were three generations of us. And my grandparents, uh, their Sunday school class was, was in the worship center, so in the, in the sanctuary. So, you know, they would, they would sat in the same exact place every Sunday. And they just stayed there for worship after Sunday school. And, uh, and of course, both my grandparents have gone to be with the Lord now. They, they were buried in the cemetery right beside the church. But you know, when I'm worshiping here with you, I'm also worshiping with them. As they are a part of that company gathered around the throne in heaven, worshiping God, we're worshiping together. I want to close with one more thing, and, and that is that I think that when we say that I believe in the church, it also means I love the church. I remember my first Sunday here at Faith Westwood nearly nine years ago. And I stood here and I stood before this crowd of people I didn't know. And amazingly, I felt at home. I felt I belonged here. I felt I loved this church. I love these people. It was, it was a God thing. I mean, I really can't explain it other than that. And, uh, 
and, and since then, I've just come to love this church more and more. And, and, and there's something I want you to say here, and, and that is that it is important to love the church as it is, not just as we wish it to be. You get what I'm saying? You, it's kind of like with your kids. You, you know, you've got to believe the best in them, but you also have to love them as they are. And that's the way it is with the church. We've got to love the church as it is, not just some ideal, super perfect church that we wish we were going to. Love the church as it is. Tim Keller notes that Jesus loved us not because we were lovely. He loved us to make us lovely. Isn't that fascinating? Ephesians 5, I love this talks about the church as the bride of Christ. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or or other blemish, but holy and blameless. But when Jesus found us and loved us, we weren't like that. Jesus loved us even though we were stained by our past. He loved the church even though it's wrinkled with stubbornness. He loves the church even though it's blemished with conflict. And he loves us to make us lovely. But he loves us as we are. The church is not a business. We're not peddling bite-sized inspiration for our customers. It's our family. It's who we are. It's our identity. And it's Jesus' church. And we love the church.